0: Okay, let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll continue in our scripture reading and our sermon for today. Please join me in prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to gather together and be your people and do what it is you've called us to do, which is to worship you. Thank you, Father, and I hope that all that's been done today and all that continues to be done today will be pleasing to your ears. And I pray that you would um, clarify your eternal truths that's found in your inerrant word that I'm going to struggle to try my best to explain imperfectly, inadequately. And I beg you that you'd be merciful and send your spirit to make it clear in the hearts of the people that has come and redeem and mature a people for yourself. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, today we're going to take a break from our current sermon series uh, through the book of Acts, and we're going to preach on a passage that specifically focuses on the resurrection of Christ. And as I kind of studied the Bible more, and as I kind of grew my understanding of the Bible, the resurrection of Christ is kind of the part of the Bible story that I was least familiar with. Now, I didn't really understand why it was so important, because a lot of people get why the birth of Christ was important, right? That's what Christmas is all about. A lot of people get why the death of Christ was so important, why that was significant, which is what the cross is about. But the resurrection, why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the resurrection is also a matter of first importance? I never knew. I never understood why. Well, Paul continues to explain there because, he says, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead then everything we're doing right now is a lie. (laughs) It's pointless. If Jesus stayed dead, cancel a church, cancel Christianity, it's all a lie because what proof is there then that Jesus really is who he claimed to be and that he really did what he said he did? Anyone can die on a cross, A lot of people did, actually. But if Jesus really is God who came to earth to defeat sin and death for us, then how can he who defeated death stay dead? If Jesus didn't resurrect, then this whole thing is a lie, Paul says, and we're all sitting here today because we got tricked by a con man. Go home. But if Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. Take that in for a second. A man claiming to be God died on a cross, like his heart flatlined, and he said he did it to forgive you of your sins, all of it, past, present, future. And we say, okay, that's cool. And then three days later, this same guy rose from the dead, You can't just say, okay, that's cool anymore. (laughs) How could you? If it really did happen, it should wreck everything you understand about life. It should repair your sense of self so drastically to where even you don't recognize yourself anymore. And it should give you a sense of purpose so strong that it'll carry you through whatever darkness this life presents. And that's exactly what happened to the people that we're going to study in our passage today in 1 Peter. Today, we're going to study a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of suffering Christians who were being heavily persecuted for their faith. And to keep these despondent Christians going, the first thing Peter chose to say to them weren't strategies about how to escape their suffering, weren't plans about how to self-defense. No. To keep these suffering Christians going, the first thing Peter reminded them of is the doctrine of the resurrection. And it worked. It kept the early church going up till today. How? How does the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead keep people who are barely able to stand up on their feet going? Well, Let's get into it. It says God's word, taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord. Four things I want to point out from this passage. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ like these early Christians did, you're going to be able to keep going even when life gets dark because, one, you'll be able to worship even in distress. Two, you'll view trials in a very unique way. Three, you'll see growth amidst the fire. And four, you'll be surprised by moments of inexpressible joy. Okay, don't worry about getting it all down now. It's going to repeat itself again. Let's just jump to our first one. If you believe that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, you'll be able to worship even in distress. When someone's in the depth of sadness, okay, maybe you've experienced this yourself or you know a friend or a family member who's gone through it. What are the main methods you've seen people try to do in order to pick them back up? Here are the main tools that I've seen used a lot and that I use a lot. One is commanding, right? Commanding, get up, you weakling. (laughs) Get up. Is that how a Christian should act? That's one way people do. Two, minimizing is another popular one. It's okay. Other people have gone through worse. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Another popular third one is micromanaging. All right. You know, you're, you're in a bad spot. Let's make a plan. Gotta do this, gotta do that. Step one, step two. I'm not saying these methods are inherently bad. No. Some people need to hear some of these things. And the Bible does use each one of them throughout its course, by the way, at different times. But there are moments, aren't there, where life gets really dark, like it was for the Christians in Peter's day, and all hope seem lost to where commanding, minimizing, and micromanaging will just feel like it's falling flat on the ground. And it doesn't work. You've experienced that. People trying to do that with you. It just doesn't work. It feels flat to the ground. Peter, sensing this to be the case for these persecuted early Christians, knew that they needed something more powerful. So what'd he do? Look at verse 3. He shocked their system into worship. He opens up by saying, blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, worship is probably the last thing these early Christians wanted to do, and we want to do whenever we're in this despondent stage of our lives. They're getting kicked out of their homes for their faith. Their lands are being taken away by the Roman authorities. They're displaced wanderers with no place to lay their heads. And back then, you didn't have international banks to save your money in in case of a national disaster. Back then, you lose your house and your land, that's it. You lose everything you own, but also you lose your whole inheritance. Everything your father passed down to you and everything you'll pass down to your kids, gone. And being in an Asian context, maybe, helps us understand this better than maybe other people, perhaps, right? That family inheritance is more than just an issue of money, isn't it? There's identity attached to it. You know what I mean? Oh, he or she is so and so, son and daughter, uh, and, you know, the father worked this, so then he and she will continue. You see what I'm saying? It's not just about money. It's about your sense of self. There's pride attached to it. There's identity attached to it. These Romans, when they robbed these early Christians from their inheritance, they didn't just take their money. They took their identity, their sense of self, And if you've ever been at a spot where your sense of self was stripped down to nothing, which I've been plenty of times, praising God is probably the last thing you wanna do. Can't we wait to do this later, right, Peter, when things are less messy? (laughs) You know, let us find a new home first. Let us get settled in first. No, Peter says. We do this now. Why? Because he continues in verse three. You've been born again to a living hope in the resurrection. Now, let's connect two and two together, okay? Peter's portraying here the image of Christ resurrecting out of the tomb here as a rebirth of sorts. And everyone who believes in this, he says, is also, what? Born again. Now, the imagery of being born again in verse 3 is really important because it makes us ask the question, born again unto what? Go to verse 4. You're born again Unto an inheritance, Peter says, you see, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The Roman soldiers took the inheritance your father gave you, Peter asks. Have you forgotten who your real father is? Have you forgotten what family you actually belong to and what inheritance is actually yours? See the connection? We all know what that feels like to be stripped down to nothing. Nothing. Okay, something happened, something was taken away, whether it was a tangible item or not, either way, something was lost, and the future good life you had in mind now, gone, altered, it won't happen anymore. And your strength feels like it's been zapped out of your bones. And all you want to do is wallow in the dark. And Peter here enters into our darkness. And he gently turns our eyes to the empty tomb of Christ. And he asks, tell me again, what's this feature that you've lost? What's been taken away? And, and the counselor in me is cringing because I want to say, Peter, stop, stop minimizing their pain. Right, They've lost a lot, their house, their land, their inheritance, but he's not minimizing what they've lost. He's reminding them of what they still have. An unfading inheritance, a future good life that's imperishable. <laughs> imperishable. Recently, I was given a financial advice by someone who's pretty conservative in the way he spends money, and he said this, Look, if you ever come across a large sum of money... Don't waste it on perishable items, he said. Invest it instead on non-perishable items, which is good advice. I probably need to hear that more, right? But for the life of me, I can't think of anything that falls under that category of unperishable. And I know what he means, right? He's saying... Don't waste money on expensive cars and branded clothing. Invest in, I don't know, land, property, gold, whatever, right? Which is true. Land, property, and gold is much more long-lasting than fancy cars and branded clothes. But it's still perishable. I think we often confuse long-lasting with imperishable. Nothing here is imperishable. The only thing That we will take with us unto eternity, scripture says, is the gift of resurrection life that Christ has purchased for us on that cross. Life eternal that will be lived in this place, the Bible says, where our earthly losses are redeemed, our earthly wounds are healed, and every drop of tear we've ever shed satisfactorily answered. That's the future inheritance Peter promises here. So for uh, those who are in Christ, um, uh, another word for it is heaven. Emily Dickens, a famous poet, described it like this much better than I could ever said. She said, I shall know why when time is over and I've ceased to wonder why. Christ will explain each separate anguish in the fair schoolroom of the sky. He will tell me what Peter promised, and I, for wonder at his woe, I shall forget the drop of anguish that scolds me now, that scolds me now. Through the resurrection of Christ, Peter says, you've been born again into a promise of a future home where you will never again ask the question, why? It's redeemed, it's done, it's finished. Don't minimize what you've lost, but for goodness sake, don't minimize what is forever yours either in Christ. And if you really believe in that, that that's what's awaiting you at the end of this road, you know what you're gonna be able to do now? You're gonna view the current trials you're going through today, right now, in this world in a very unique way, okay? Which leads us to our second point. Okay, when when you're going through something really hard, there's this fine line that you hope other people would try to balance on, right? We all know how this feels like. On one hand, you want them to be able to encourage you. But on the other hand, you also want them to appreciate that what you're going through is hard. It's not easy, right? You want them to be able to find both joy without diminishing your grief, That's what we need. That's what we want. And that's a really hard balance to strike for anyone, including us. But this is exactly the unique balance that believing in the resurrection actually allows us to have. Look at verse 6. Peter gives room for both joy and grief in the same sentence. If you believe in the resurrection, Peter says, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, joy and grief coexisting. That's a unique way to view your suffering in this life. And the only worldview that helps you have the foundation to do that is the resurrection. How so? Look, if you don't believe that God will one day bring you into a place where you will forever cease to wonder why, as Emily Dickens so eloquently put it earlier, If you don't believe that's waiting for you, it's going to be really hard for you to find joy in your current suffering today. You need to believe in some sort of redemption at the end to have joy in your suffering today. To stop asking the question why. But Tez, I don't believe in the resurrection and I've stopped asking why a long time ago. Okay, sure. But you stop asking not because of future joy. You stop asking because you're tired of asking. And that's different. There's a huge difference. That's not joy amidst grief, that's tiredness within grief. You're done asking, not because of joy, not because it's resolved, but because it's suppressed. And I know what that feels like because I do it a lot. Believing in the resurrection doesn't stop us from asking why, because we've been brought to an exhausted halt. Believing in the resurrection relieves us. From, from being obsessed by the question why, because we know that beyond a shadow of doubt, one day every tear will be answered and redeemed. Every tear, even the ones we've forgotten, even the ones we think are unredeemable, even the ones that we've caused unto others. There's hope, rejoice, Peter says in verse six, okay? But at the same time, the resurrection also validates your grief, he says. How? Well, because the fact that a future resurrection is necessary means that things aren't yet the way they're supposed to be today, and it needs fixing. How are you going to say that something needs to be fixed without admitting that it's also broken? It's broken. We live in a broken world. You're broken. I'm broken. This whole place is broken, and it needs to be fixed. And at times, therefore, it's right for us to be angry today. It's right for us to grieve, Peter says. It's right for us to feel discontent. It is godly to feel sad about how bad things are at times. When Jesus saw Lazarus dead, what did he do? Stoically stared at the grave? He cried. When he saw people use God's temple to make money for themselves, what did he do? He literally flipped out. He flipped tables. He was angry. It's not more Christ-like to be emotionless about everything as if you're so heavenly-minded that things of this world don't affect you. No, if you're so heavenly-minded the things of this world will affect you, it's just gonna affect you according to heavenly values and not yours. See, a worldview that believes in the future resurrection both gives you joy, but it also validates your grief. That's what Peter's trying to say in verse six. And when you go through hard times in life, you need this worldview that brings you to this point. Why? Because hitting this balance is the only thing that will going to help make you able to last in the fire and grow in it, leading us to point three. Believing in the resurrection is going to help you see growth amidst a fire. Okay. Let's move on to our passage to verse seven. Peter said, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Resurrection hope will make you last long in the fire and help you grow from it, Peter says. How? Let's connect verses six to seven. Okay. Stick with me. Again, verse six, if this is joy and suffering and this is acknowledgement of grief and sadness, and this is resurrection hope. Okay. Okay. Being here is the only thing that will make you be able to be purified by the fire. How? Because a few clicks this way, you're moving away from proper grief toward denial. You see? You're denying that some things are worth grieving. That's not resurrection hope. That's escapism. And you're not enduring the fire. You're running away from it. You're pretending like it's not there or it's not that hot, or it's not that big. You can't be sanctified by the fire if you keep pretending that it's not there. You'll never wonder, hmm, what sins right now are being purified from my life? Hmm, I wonder what idols right now God's trying to address. If you don't feel the fire, you see, escapism only leads to constant immaturity. But a few clicks this way, you move too far from joy toward hopelessness and grief. Sure, unlike escapism, you'll remain in the fire that way, but goodness gracious, you'll burn. (laughs) You won't last long. You're going to get swallowed up by it. You see the connection between verses 6 and verse 7? What's going to keep you strong in the fire without getting burned, but rather be grow and purified, is resurrection hope. You gotta hang out here, or else you're either escape or burn. Don't deny that sometimes it's hard and you're sad and you're angry and you're anxious, it's all there. But ask yourself, hope, joy, how will these small deaths undergo a resurrection of sorts in the future? What's God doing for me, through me, in me, with all of this? To where at the end of the day, it'll result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter says in verse 7. Okay. I hope you're starting to get the, the bigger picture of what's going on here. And let's, let me summarize before we move on to our last point. A worldview that believes in the resurrection, it'll keep you going through dark seasons in life, Peter says, to these persecuted first-century Christians. How? Because you're guaranteed an imperishable inheritance in Christ a land where all your tears will be explained and that you'll never again have to ask the question why. You have that to look forward to. And because of that, you have a foundation that allows you to both rejoice and grief at the same time today, which is exactly the balance you need to strike if you want to be able to endure in the fire without escaping it or without being consumed by it, but rather grow in it, okay? Okay. That's verses 3 to 7. But every now and then, Peter continues in verse 8, some fires get too hot and too big to handle, like it probably was for these early Christians back then. To where you need something more, something more than just an eternal cognitive perspective about life that Peter talked about in verses 3 to 7. So Peter, he reminds his readers as he closes in verses 8 to 9 that believing in the resurrection will give you something else that you need as well, something more than just eternal perspective. Leads us to our last point. Surprising moments of inexpressible joy. So Peter closes this section of his letter by telling these suffering Christians that when you believe in the resurrection, every now and then, on top of having eternal perspective about life and all that, Every now and then, you'll also feel something else today, right now, that'll keep you going. What is that thing? Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. See that? Peter here is not just talking about cognitive perspective or a future hope. He's talking about a current emotion. You love him today, right now. That's what you experience if you believe in the resurrection. What he's saying is that some fires on earth are too big and too hot for us to get through just with eternal perspective alone. Sometimes that's not enough. What we need at times to keep going is a sort of emotive present that'll push us through. It's like every classic boxing movie out there, right? He's losing, the bell rings, he goes to his corner, all beat up, bleeding, and barely moving, and his coach is talking, 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 giving him perspective, 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 but the pain is just too much, and he's not hearing a word that his coach is saying. But then, all of a sudden, from the corner of his eye, what does he see? His wife, right, or his children, or something. And all of a sudden, a burst of energy shoots through his veins, and he wins the fight, right? And they celebrate. He found the strength to keep going. How? Not because his brain was affected by the words of his coach, but because his heart was on the spot, washed over by an emotion that pushed him through. You need that, Peter says. Some fires are too big. What is that emotion for us, Christian, that the resurrection gives us, allows us to feel now, today, that will push you through? It's a kind of love, Peter says, that burns bigger and brighter than any of our earthly fires. A love for who? For him. Who's him, Peter? For Christ. How does believing in the resurrection lead me to a current, today, right now, love for Christ? Because... If you believe that he resurrected, it will remind you of the fact that he died. And it also, therefore, remind you of the reason of why he did die. Why did he die, Christians? Why did your king give up his life? It's so that the fire of God's wrath may escape you and fall upon him. The only way you can get through some fires in this life is by being emotively moved by Christ, who willingly took on the largest and scariest of all fires that should have been yours, that should have been mine. He died in the fire that was meant for us so that we can enjoy the inheritance that should have only been his. He took your griefs, and you now have his joy. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because I deserve it. We didn't pay anyone for this. It was an inheritance given to you. Look at verse 3 again. It was by God's great mercy. Look at verse 5. It was by God's power. And how do you know that it worked? How do you know that it really is yours? Because he didn't stay dead. Because the tomb was empty. And if you believe in that, if you have faith in that, you too stand in this victory. And you have all the resources that you need right now, perspectively, cognitively, emotively, to walk through every furnace this life offers you with confidence that you will never be burned because Jesus was already scorched to death on your behalf. You need that. We're more than brains on a stick. We need an emotive push. When life almost knocks you out, and you're struggling in your corner, and everybody's words feel like they fall flat on the floor, look, desperately, look for Jesus. He's there. He promised. He will always be with you. Find him, even through your blurry, bruised eyes. Find him, and when you see him, remember why you're doing this. Remember why you're living for him and not for the world. Because he first loved you, and he gave up the world to have you. Taste that joy. Have your system be shocked by worship once again. Yes, in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the bruises, And then rise up back on your feet to live another day and serve him again with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul until, Peter says in verse 9, you attain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls until you arrive in a land who has a king whose wounds will make you forget every drop of anguish that scolds you now, that scolds you now. This, friends, is the significance of the resurrection, a future hope, a current love that'll keep you serving him no matter the cost forevermore. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the neglect of this great truth and doctrine. A lot of people claim to be God. A lot of people claim that they're the Christ. A lot of people claim to be the Savior. Any crazy man on the streets can say that. But all of the followers who followed those people died when that guy who claimed divinity died. But for some reason, this guy, Jesus, The movement didn't die when he died. Why is that? What gave the early church so much vigor to give their lives, their inheritance for you, is because they knew the tomb truly was empty. And now they hang everything on this truth. And now they view everything in life through these lenses of resurrection hope. Help your church today to not forget of this truth and follow you with the same vigor that your people did in the early church and is meant to forevermore. In Jesus' name and in his name alone, we pray, amen.